Our first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting in verse 1. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all the tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there, rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns who have no land allotted to them or any inheritance of their own. The second passage is taken from John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Zachar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming, here to draw water. 
he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. We're in a series on verbs of discipleship in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is set over 3,000 years ago in the late Bronze Age. Israel are camped on the east river, east side rather, the River Jordan, about to enter into the land the Lord has promised. Moses, their leader, addresses them for the last time. Remarkably, even though you are not an Israelite, but a 20th century Christian believer, or maybe someone exploring the faith, you can still gain wisdom for discipleship from this ancient text. We've had two verbs of discipleship so far. Remember, remember what the Lord has done, and love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength. Today, worship, worship the Lord, or serve the Lord, because serve actually is the Hebrew word used in Deuteronomy, even when the English translations also have the word worship, translated worship. Well, what about worshiping the Lord? Deuteronomy has three things to say. One, worship the Lord in the Lord's place where the Lord's presence is. Two, worship the Lord in the Lord's way and not otherwise. And three, worship the Lord only. Now, I'll deal with each in turn, but also show what they mean today for us non-Israelite believers or seekers in Jesus. But first, two important preliminary matters of context. A, these commands flow out of a relationship of grace between the one true God and his people. The commands are a response to the unmerited gift of becoming the Lord's people. Now this, this gift or grace of the Lord to Israel is unconditioned, that is, there is nothing about Israel that deserved, let alone merited, the Lord's favour. But, and this is important for Deuteronomy, in fact, for the whole of the Christian life for that matter, God's grace does bring with it obligations. That is, it may be unconditioned, but it's not unconditional. It is freely given, but what is given is transformational. The mod any modern idea that grace is completely free with no strings attached is not that of the Bible. It's a recent Western invention to think of gifts as completely free without strings attached. In the biblical world, and today, in fact, in most of the world 
outside of the West. Gifts, even when they are freely given, create obligations. So from that free grace flows the obligation on Israel as the Lord creates a people for himself. That's the first matter. This is an issue of worshipping the Lord in response to the Lord's grace. The second matter of context. Israel is about to go into a multi-religious, multi-God context. They're entering the land of Canaan. Canaanites worshipped many gods, higher gods, lower gods, good and evil ones. Important and not so important ones. There was El, the fatherly god, there was Baal, the warrior god, Anet, the powerful female god, and so forth. And these gods were thought to be part of the natural order of things. Uh, they're bound up with fertility, life, and death, and what we would call natural forces. They were worshipped in various rituals and ceremonies, at sacred places and hills and trees, uh, using statues which were thought to channel the presence of the particular god in mind. Now, it's hard for us to see any attraction in any of this. But for the Israelites, this was a very strong attraction. For us, to us, Canaanite worship might seem weird. To the Israelites, or anyone else in the late Bronze Age for that matter, it all looked completely normal. The weird thing, the Lord insisting that they worship him and him only. And differently from the normal order in which you worship gods, with no, with no statues. The pressure on Israel to somehow mix and match their worship of the Lord with what, was going, what would be going on around them would be immense. That's the context in which these words in Deuteronomy are said. First, instructions not to gain the Lord's favour, but in response to the Lord's favour. And secondly, Israel facing a situation of immense pressure and temptation to have, if I may use an anachronic phrase, normal religion like all the other people in the land they're possessing. Well, let us now turn to the three instructions about worship. Worship the Lord in the Lord's place, where the Lord's presence is. Worship the Lord in the Lord's way, and not otherwise. And worship the Lord only. First, worship the Lord in the Lord's place, where the Lord's presence is. As, as we heard in the reading, the opening words of Deuteronomy 12 call for a complete and utter rejection and destruction of the religious sites of the people already in the land. Why? Verse 4 explains, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. I'll come back to this in just a moment, but at this point I'm interested in the next verse, verse 5. But you are to seek the place where the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. Deuteronomy teaches that the Lord is to be served, worshipped, at the place where he chooses, the place of his dwelling, the place where he puts his name. Let me read on again from verse 5 and beyond. But you better seek the place that the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you vow to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, 
You and all your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. The place will be the place of the presence of the Lord. There you gather to offer and to celebrate. Now this idea of a place where the presence of the Lord is takes some thinking about. I mean, strictly speaking, God is not in any place. God is not an object in the universe, like me sitting here or the planet Venus or something. And yet, because God is not an object in the universe and continually gives existence to everything that is, you might say that God is present in every place. A kind of ambient presence. But here's the point. God is also able to make what you might call his focus presence real within his creation. There may be God's ambient presence, but there is also his personal focused presence. And that's what's promised here. Now at this stage, Israel is not told where the location is going to be. Just that the Lord will be there, his name and his presence. And that is where he is to be, to use our language, worshipped. Worship the Lord in the Lord's place, where the Lord's presence is. That's the first statement in Deuteronomy on worship. Now you may say, what on this on earth does this mean for an us non-Israelite believers in Jesus today? You may be surprised to hear that this very issue is explicitly dealt with in the New Testament. In John 4, Jesus is passing through Samaria and gets into conversation with a woman there. Samaritans were kind of offshoots of the Jews and neither side really recognised the legitimacy of the other. In the conversation, Jesus sees Jesus as no ordinary man. Sir, I see you are a prophet, she says. And then she asks what is a burning question between the Jews and the Samaritans, a question about the place where the Lord is to be worshipped. John 4, verse 20, she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, presumably pointing to Mount Gerizim, nearby. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Samaritans and Jews disagreed about the place mentioned in Deuteronomy, where the Lord was to be worshipped. The Jews took it to be Jerusalem, which interestingly is not mentioned in Deuteronomy. The Samaritans took it to be Mount Gerizim, which is Jesus' reply, however, changes the whole terms of the question, the whole question itself. Woman, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That is, it's all changing. Although in passing, he does say the Jews had been right. Verse 12, you Samaritans worship, sorry, verse 22, I should say, you Samaritans worship that which you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But that's all changing. Verse 23, Yet a time is coming, says Jesus, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The place 
is no longer a place. It's not geographically defined. It's now a matter of worship in the spirit and truth. You may ask, what does Jesus mean? And typically, in the Gospel of John, it's not immediately clear. The answer, however, slowly unfolds as John's Gospel develops. A key moment, for example, comes in John 14, verse 6, when Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It does become clear, not just in John, but through the entire New Testament, that Jesus is the place. He is the place. The only real place where God dwells and meets his people. He is the place of meeting and the unique place of meeting. He is the place where God is to be worshipped. And so, for example, the writer of the Hebrews can say in chapter 13, verse 15, quote, Through Jesus, therefore, let us offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Through Jesus. Not just the risen Jesus, however, by derivation, we may also say the gathering of his people. The assembly of the believers in Jesus are also described in the New Testament as God's temple. Think about that when we finally come to church next week. The hymn writer William Cowper expressed it well. Jesus, where'er your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Where they seek you, you are found, and every place is hallowed ground. Worship the Lord in the Lord's place, where the Lord's presence is, through Jesus. And now secondly, worship the Lord, the Lord's way, and not otherwise. In Deuteronomy, the Lord specifies how he's to be worshipped or served, or rather, how he's not to be worshipped or served. You see this in the opening words of Deuteronomy 12, which I jumped over, uh, a bit before. Let me pick it up at verse 2. This is the Lord's instructions. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And then later in the chapter, uh, this is repeated with even more clarity. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 30, Israel is told to be careful not to be ensnared by asking the question, how do these nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. No, says God, verse 32, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And in Deuteronomy, in fact, in the biblical testimony of the Old Testament, one particular practice is especially prohibited. What is it? It is the otherwise universal practice of worshipping the gods by means of physical statues thought to somehow embody the deity called idols. These were common in all ancient religions, but uniquely not for the Lord's people, utterly forbidden. 
it was an unremarkable standout. The Lord has no form, you see, to be, recre to re be recreated to help in worship. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, uh, this is what Moses says on this issue. I quote, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore watch yourselves carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like an animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or any creature that moves along ground or any fish in the waters below. They're not to worship the Lord this way. As I said, Deuteronomy has a lot on what not to do. Is there a positive side in Deuteronomy on how the Lord is to be worshipped? Interestingly, Deuteronomy does not give that detailed or complete instructions. It's assumed, for example, that the reader already knows what is meant when, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 6, a reference is made to, quote, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you vowed to give and your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks. Uh, these are strange to us and perhaps we're not quite sure exactly what they're referring to. But to the readers, they're commonplace. To Israel about to enter Canaan, they're commonplace. It's clear, this is much as clear. For them, worship was very much a physical affair. That is, it involved stuff primarily consisting of various kinds of sacrifices. Offerings, firstborn of your herds, tithes, special gifts, sacrifices, offerings, as well as observing special seasons and times, special days. Let me make a brief comment about sacrifice. Uh, sacrifices for Israel were not just for about sin, perhaps not even primarily for sin. Sacrifices are expressive of and building of relationship. The main idea of a sacrifice is that of a gift. Not, by the way, the cost of a gift, which is the way we use the word sacrificial today. If it's sacrificial, it costs you a lot. In biblical times, it was sacrificial because it was a gift to a god. Let me give you an example of how this works. Sometimes when Margie and I come home to our building, we find a single flower on the doormat outside our apartment. We know that this is a gift from Gracie. Gracie is that little two-year-old who lives in the apartment above us. And she will occasionally pick a flower when out shopping with her parents and bring it home to give us. That little flower is what sacrifice was in the world of ancient Israel, a gift that is expressive of and building a relationship. In fact, that understanding of gift is inherent in every human society. Even two-year-olds get it. Well, that's how the Lord was to be worshipped. Physical sacrifices. Generally, there are other things, but that's the main focus. What about us, New Testament believers? We live under a different covenant than that in Deuteronomy. There are no prescribed ceremonies as such for the believers. Though perhaps the memorial meal of the Lord's Supper and the practice of baptism may be something of an exception. And of course, the abhorrence of idolatry is continued. But positively, the New Testament envisages 
Sure, joyful gatherings like those in Deuteronomy, without the burnt offerings and the physical sacrifices and such like. For example, Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, song, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And yet, in another sense, it can be said that believers still do offer sacrifices, though of a different kind to that of Deuteronomy. In the New Testament, the emphasis upon worshipping or serving the Lord by how you live, how you behave, in fact. Romans 12, verse 1 is a good example. I quote, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true and proper worship. Offering a body is a way of speaking about offering your behaviour, what you do with your body, in other words. And go back to Hebrews 13, 15, which I'd quoted a little earlier, where the writer says, through Jesus, let us offer to God a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. When you gather to praise God or confess his name, you're offering a sacrifice of praise. And when we gather, we do that. Because that's one reason why the traditional name for church gatherings actually is divine service. You are serving God by your gathering to hear his word and to claim his praises. Although it's not just that. The very next verse in Hebrews says this, verse 16, And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So the city care lunch is as much a sacrifice as our church service. And you're giving to others the same. In Philippians 4.18, Paul can describe the material help the Philippian church sent him like this. I quote, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Gifts to support gospel ministry, for example. An acceptable sacrifice. In fact, Paul even described his own ministry, commissioned as an apostle of the Gentiles, in sacrificial terms. Back in Romans 16, 15, verse 16. God gave me, he writes, the priestly duty, the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul sees himself as kind of like a priest, offering to God the sacrifice of the Gentiles who've come to know the Lord through proclaiming the gospel. That's all involved for us in worshipping the Lord, the Lord's way. So we've had worship the Lord in the Lord's place, worship the Lord in the Lord's way, and lastly, worship the Lord alone. This is one, the one theme of Deuteronomy above all others. In fact, you might say it's not a theme in Deuteronomy. It's the point of the whole book. The Lord has brought Egypt, Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, the Lord must serve him and serve him alone. No other gods at all. In fact, six times in Deuteronomy, 
the Lord is described as a jealous God. The clearest is back in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord is your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. Jealous is the Hebrew word kanah, which means impassioned, infuriated. Now, this may be hard for us to grasp because for us, jealousy often implies pettiness and weakness. But for God, it's the passionate zeal for his holiness and for his exclusive place with God. He is jealous in that he has a zeal to protect what is his. It's a strong, powerful love that will not let go. In effect, Deuteronomy is saying to the people, you can't be redeemed by the Lord, become his people, and then walk away from it. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, no other gods. It might be grace, but it's fierce grace. And that's why in chapter 13, which we won't go into, Israel tells, is told to be ruthless with anyone, any so-called prophet or not, who says anything like, let's go follow other gods. Surprising to us, the chapter says there's not to be the slightest hesitation in killing. Yes, even killing those, you say, let us worship other gods. And anyone who gives, anyone who gives them succor. This is a life and death matter for the nation. Worship the Lord alone at the Lord's place, the Lord's way, but especially the Lord alone. Now at this point, you might say to me, Rob, I'm glad you left this point to the last because this doesn't affect me at all. I'm not the slightest tempted to serve Baal or Anet or any other of those strange late bronze century Canaanite gods or any other gods for that matter. If that's what you said to me, I think I'd say this back to you. Yes, you are right. Our situation is vastly different from that of Israel on the plains of Moab about to enter Canaan. Although we do need to remember this, early Christians did face the threat of being forced to worship other gods in the form of the aggressive imperial cult in Rome. And many of our brothers and sisters in the early church lost their lives rather than give way at this point. And even today in the world, there are many believers in contexts where the worship of other gods is a real temptation or serious pressure point. We're lucky in a way not to be in that situation. Or rather, God's been kind to us. But in Australia, it's easy. we're easy going. In fact, the biggest threat is not the pressure to worship other gods, but what has been called apatheism. That is, where people don't care one way or the other about the gods or God. So yes, I, I, I agree with you at this last point. I might be tempted to agree with you completely that worship the Lord alone today is not such a big deal. Except, except for one telling phrase in the New Testament. It's almost a throwaway line from the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's writing how believers should walk in the way of love and then verse 5, he gives this warning. Ephesians 5, 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
Such a person is an idolater, a greedy person. Suddenly, idolatry has leapt out of the religious world of serving false gods to a whole new realm. It becomes about what or who is first in your heart. And that's a challenge we can't escape. Worship the Lord alone in God's place, the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's way, offering sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving and good works. But above all, God alone.